Hello, everyone. This is Tina, your host of Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. As you know, I normally like to have a guest host who is either also a nurse like me or a member of the healthcare field in some way. I recently had an opportunity to talk to a pharmacist named Heather Draper. Heather is an American who did some volunteer work in the Kutapalong refugee camp in Bangladesh. She loved the work so much that she decided to take a full-time position with the company that she had previously volunteered with, Med Global. While getting to know Heather for the episode, I fell in love with her passion and her desire to help others. And as I began to research the Rohingya people of the refugee camp, I fell in love with them. Do you know this is the world's largest refugee camp and so many people have no idea it exists? I asked Heather to explain for those of us who are geographically challenged exactly where the Kutapalong refugee camp is. She explained how the camp is actually located just outside a beautiful beach known as Cox Bazaar. The beach stretches unbroken for 75 miles and is the longest natural sea beach in the world. It's also a major tourist attraction and one of the most visited places in Bangladesh. Bangladesh is actually right next to India. It's just to the east of India. Okay. And then I guess we span out in Asia, south of China. Um, it's on the Bay of Bengal. So the refugee camp, usually when you read the reports, they'll refer to it as being in Cox Bazaar, mm-hmm. which is a vacation area actually in Bangladesh. It's very nice. It has the world's largest natural sandy beach. Uh, so actually quite beautiful area. The camp itself is just, it's still in Cox Bazaar district, just outside of uh, the ocean, if you will. The One of the closest towns is Ukiya, which is where the largest uh, settlement currently is. And it's referred to as Kutsapalong. Um, I'm not sure if the listeners are aware or not, but there's actually a refugee camp uh, here in Bangladesh of Rohingya from the early 1990s, and it was called Kutsipalong. So since this uh, large influx has occurred over the last year, it's essentially been an extension of the Kutsipalong uh, refu- uh, refugee camp, again, in the Cox Bazaar district next to Ukiya and in between Technof, although there are small sediments of Rohingya all the way south uh, t- to nearly the Myanmar border. An estimated 693,000 Rohingya have been driven into Bangladesh as of April 2018. Over half of them are children. According to the BBC, the UN calls the Rohingya situation the world's fastest growing refugee crisis. They are primarily from a section of Myanmar called the Rakhine State, previously known as Burma. There were an estimated 1 million Rohingya living in Myanmar before the mass exodus happened in 2017. I asked Heather to explain a little about the Rohingya people and why they are being forced to flee Myanmar. The Rohingya are a Muslim minority. Uh, They have been named by many leading authorities as the most persecuted minority in the world right now. Uh, They are an ethnic minority that live uh, in in Myanmar, and they have been uh, under persecution essentially since the 1970s, and there have been multiple uh, large incidents of violence and also of them being stripped of their rights, including the right of citizenship. 
which of course, as you may guess, when you lose your citizenship in a country, you lose a lot of access to rights such as education and healthcare. So this has been ongoing now for decades. There was an initial uh, large influx in the 1990s, which led to the development of the original Kutupalong refugee camp here in Bangladesh. Um, and then last year, 2017, in August, uh, there was a large uh, violent outbreak in what the United Nations is now calling genocide, where there were uh, mass killings, violent uh, attacks, including rapes and torture and murders uh, that then caused uh, hundreds of thousands of Rohingya to uh, cross the border of Myanmar, the majority of which came to Bangladesh. The Rohingya people are primarily Muslim, whereas the Myanmar population is primarily Buddhist. As religion often is, this has been a major source of contention over the past several decades between the two groups. The Rohingya are a small minority, and the Myanmar government has refused to give them a voice or acknowledge them as a people. This has led to a back and forth of periods between the two where there will be periods of violence and unrest and then periods of coexistence and tolerance to an extent. Well, in the most recent, um, like in 2017, the most, what is being cited, and again, I think there there have been multiple stories and, and things that are told about what led to this largest influx of many hundreds of thousands of people. But one of the stories that were, was told is that the uh, Rohingya Salvation Army uh, launched an attack on a police or military post in the Rakhine State in Myanmar. And so the violence that occurred after that was essentially in reaction to a, a violent attack initiated or or at least allegedly initiated by this Rohingya group. Many, many of the Rohingya people have testified and shared stories that they saw people being tortured and killed. So, mm-hmm. you, I mean, there are, certainly are eyewitness accounts of these things happening. So, for many of them, it wasn't, it was not just that they felt like these things could happen, but that they witnessed them with their own eyes. The UN issued an investigation into the circumstances surrounding the mass exodus. The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights described the situation as a textbook example of ethnic cleansing. The crimes committed include murder, rape, torture, sexual slavery, persecution, and enslavement according to the Independent International Fact-Finding Mission on Myanmar. Satellite images show entire Rohingya villages completely gone and the earth where they once stood scorched. I asked Heather to tell us a little more about the organization that she works for and what they're doing to help. The organization I work for is MedGlobal. It's an American-based international NGO, and we provide medical support and medical care for the Rohingya and one of the camps here in Bangladesh. So we provide uh, both primary care services, if you will. So your your typical cough, cold, um, acute watery diarrhea is a huge uh, problem um, or or complaint for our patients. And then we also have a four-bed emergency room that sees uh, both emergent and urgent patients as well. We also do some things like outreach and education as well, but our, our primary focus is providing medical services, medical care for the Rohingya. 
I was curious as to what the clinic looked like and what services they were able to offer. So I asked her to describe that for us. We have a clinic and it's, it's actually inside the camp. And so we're, we, we walk through like the, a village, if you will, if you can imagine that um, amongst the houses where the people live. And we have a clinic that's situated essentially on top of the hill and the patients are able to uh, walk to us to see us there right inside their community. In our clinic, uh, we have community health volunteers that walk through the camps to identify patients that need to be seen. And so frequently they are brought to us. We also have patient porters and they essentially have developed this carrier system uh, using a large piece of bamboo and a blanket that makes essentially a hammock, if you can imagine, suspended from a piece of bamboo. Mm-hmm. And then two patient porters, two men, carry the patient into clinic. And so what we can provide in our current clinic is any kind of oral medications. We have all of that, but we also have things like IV fluids, IV antibiotics, things like that to uh, a try to stabilize the patient as best as possible. Mm -hmm. And currently in the clinic, we do have some higher level care uh, facilities that we can refer to if if the patient meets certain criteria. So for example, they could be admitted, if you will, overnight for IV fluid rehydration. Mm -hmm. Or if it was cholera, there was concern for cholera, there are diarrhea treatment centers for isolation and treatment of those patients. You imagine our clinic or our or hospital or our emergency rooms. Um, you should know they're bamboo structures. So they're. I mean, our clinic is really very nice, um, but it is uh, just essentially like woven bamboo. Uh, and then we have cots inside. Uh, and then there are some facilities that use things like storage containers or like large. I think people would envision like military tents, if you will like the thicker walled tents. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not, not like a hospital, I guess, as you what, what may, came, what may come to mind. The UN describes the camp as a desperately overcrowded environment prone to landslides and flooding. With this in mind, I asked Heather about the efforts to keep the water and living conditions sanitary with so many people having to live in such a relatively small area and just to describe the living conditions for her patients. The living conditions of the patients, uh, essentially, they are are living in a shelter that is made of a tarp that is suspended into a house-type shape using bamboo. And then typically it would be a dirt floor. And it's essentially a one-room structure where they uh, live and sleep and uh, spend their time during the day and do their cooking as well. And then there are uh, latrines available in the camp that are used for uh, the toilet facilities, which are shared amongst many members of the community. So one thing you would probably be really impressed with, and I think one thing our volunteers are really impressed with, is actually how clean it is in the camp. For being as congested and as many people that live in this camp and very, very, very close uh, congested living quarters, it's very clean. There is not garbage, you know, lying around. Things are very, very well taken care of. So both um, the people uh, living in the communities, you know, they do take 
I, I think it's very safe to say they take great pride in having a clean environment. And then also for things like the latrines, uh, there's a sector in the camp called wash sector, and they're involved with water and sanitation hygiene in the camp. So they they assist with the latrines and things as well. But really, it's it's the Rohingya themselves that keep their living quarters clean. And it's, as I said, I can't emphasize enough how impressive it is for how clean they do keep things considering the, the situation. According to the United Nations, families desperate to earn money are frequently sending their daughters to work in dangerous environments. And the whole community is extremely vulnerable to human trafficking. I wondered about their ability to work and live anything resembling a normal life. The Kutsipalong registered camp, it has been there since 1992. So this is a really uh, difficult situation because the Rohingyas, their movement is restricted. So they're they're really not allowed to leave the camp to go find work. Mm-hmm. And they're not allowed to work outside the camp currently. So they there are some jobs available in the camp. So for example, um, there are some like construction jobs where laborers can be hired for a day's work, for example, to make a new road in the camp. But other than that, they're not allowed to regularly or freely or voluntarily leave the camp to go find work or, or even to go shopping or anything like that. That is their life. And there are now, you know, second generation Rohingya that were born in the camp, you know, many now since 1992. A study conducted by Harvard University showed a vast majority of Rohingya household members over the age of 15, actually 76 percent, reported having had no education. And 53 percent of Rohingya children under the age of 15 were not attending school. I asked Heather what her experience has been and what she had seen in terms of education and training. In terms of the education, the education currently is somewhat limited. So, for example, the children are allowed to go to learning centers um, for a few hours per day where they are allowed to learn some things, for example, English. In terms of the adults, um, there there are many adults that are very skilled workers. And so if you, like, for example, if you cross the bridge, there are many bridges in the camp and the bridges are made out of bamboo. And I haven't been everywhere in the world, but I've been a lot of places in the world. And these are the most sturdy bridges I've ever walked on in my life. And if you look at the buildings that are constructed and the wells that they dig, the deep tube wells and the shallow tube wells for water, uh, for cleaning and then for drinking, you know, these are all things that the Rohingya have have helped to construct. I mean, they're very skilled workers. So many of them came with these trades and then others, you know, are, are taught the trade as part of the day labor in the camp. UNICEF is the Children's Fund of the United Nations. It has initiated a series of educational initiatives for children of all ages, including providing a network of learning centers and child-friendly spaces. There are now more than 1,100 learning centers run by UNICEF and its partners in the camps who reach 124,000 children with education. I wondered about the people in the camps and if all of the people in and around the camps needing assistance are Rohingya. What about the host community there in Bangladesh and the impact the situation is having on them? 
So the the only like refugees, is, if people refer to them as refugees, uh, they uh, even though they do not officially have uh, refugee status, at least not the the new uh, arrivals, um, they're all Rohingya. But I think it's really important to point out that when we talk about the number of people in need in the refugee camp here in Cox Bazar, it actually is referring to people in the host community as well. So the Bangladeshi people that live in the areas like Ukiya around the camp also are in need. So there is also a very high level of poverty and malnutrition, for example, in the areas surrounding the camp. Mm -hmm. So camp itself is Rohingya. Those are all Rohingya. But the people that seek services in the camp are also from the host community. So in our clinic, for example, we see both Rohingya and Bangladeshi people from the local community that surrounds the camp. I did some research about what Heather was talking about, about how the influx of hundreds of thousands of Rohingya have put a strain on many of the farmers and other people of Bangladesh in the community where the refugee camps are expanding. The Bangladesh government is actually attempting to build living quarters on an island located in the Bay of Bengal, known as Basan Char, which translates to floating island. The area is muddy, isolated, and many are concerned as uninhabitable. In addition to the living conditions being questionable, the UN is concerned that restrictions put on the Rohingya who are relocated there will make the island seem more like a concentration camp. In the last year, there's been a lot of talk about repatriation. Over 400,000 Rohingya who did not flee the Rakhine state are still living in Myanmar. Their living conditions have been described as an open-air prison, and they've still not been given basic human rights. Their movements are limited, and many continue to live in fear. I asked Heather to describe the situation and impression that she has about repatriation from the point of view of the Rohingya. Essentially, since a year ago, so after the initial influx, and I mean off and on for approximately the last year, there have been conversations about repatriation for many reasons. One, including that, you know, people have fled their homes and they may want to go back to their homes, but also because, you know, it's a, it is a big strain on Bangladesh and they have been very uh, welcoming for having these uh, Rohingya people here. The Rohingya, the Rohingya, they are not, they do not want to go back at this time because they are fearful that if they return, that the same thing will happen. And so they're really not willing to voluntarily return unless they are given assurances of safety and security that there's an acknowledgement of what happened and that they have return of their rights, such as citizenship. And if, you know, there's a guarantee and a level of comfort that those things can be given to them and they can live freely and, and have access to what we would consider basic human rights and meeting their basic human needs, healthcare and education, then, and they do not have to worry about persecution, then they, they would wish to return. So, like I said, for since a year or so, there's been talks of repatriation. And then in the last couple of weeks, there's been an escalation of the talks of repatriation because there was an agreement uh, between Bangladesh and Myanmar for the repatriation efforts to restart. But this has not really been something that's welcomed by the Rohingya because they still feel that they're 
has not been an acknowledgement for what has happened. And there has been no assurance that there is even safety for them upon their return. There are international standards of repatriation that prevent the Rohingya from being forced to return to Myanmar against their will. The United Nations issued a statement in November of 2018 assuring that those standards will be enforced regardless of the widespread rumors that there would be a forced repatriation. With the Bangladesh and Myanmar governments coming together to discuss a solution to the problem, I wondered just how much the Rohingya were included in these discussions. With this in mind, I asked Heather about the leaders of the Rohingya. You know, there are definitely leaders within the Rohingya people, and there are leaders within the camp, for example. The Imams and Majis are leaders within the Rohingya, and they're leaders within like their blocks within the camp as well. In terms of, I think one of the problems that has been expressed is that when there are discussions of repatriation, that the Rohingya are not included in those conversations. It's like a conversation between governments or a conversation with the UN, uh, and the Rohingya don't feel necessarily that they're being represented Mm -hmm. at a minimum at a physical level. I don't think, I don't speak for all of the Rohingya, obviously, but I don't think that they feel that they have been well represented in these discussions as they have had these peaceful protests saying we need assurances and safety and security are the minimum assurances along with justice and acknowledgement of what has happened and justice those who caused these things to happen. I think we have to remember that it's some, I mean, a lot of these people saw really, really, really terrible things happen. And they, they would rather stay living in a tarp on the side of a hill than return voluntarily at this point. I think that should say a lot. The UN says that 60% of the population of the refugee camps in Bangladesh are children. There is serious concern for the so-called lost generation and the ramifications of growing up in those conditions. As a mother of grown children myself, I realize how quickly a childhood can pass, and before you know it, your children have been molded by the environments and experiences surrounding them over the past 10 to 15 years. I asked Heather how she saw the Rohingya children handling the situation of growing up in a refugee camp. You know, I, it's, it's so interesting because I think that we adults think about this so differently than the children. Mm-hmm. And I, I just have to say that, I mean, children are so resilient. On one hand, you know, we, we, ha- we have many children that are suffering, uh, you know, from post-traumatic stress, from, you know, things that they have witnessed and, Obviously, those are things that they're going to live with their entire life. And then, you know, these children are living in this refugee camp. But then, you know, and as adults, you think how terrible this is. But then when you look around, you see these children are creating toys out of what most people would call garbage. Hmm. So, for example, one of the things that brings me so much hope and I mean, I think it's a really small thing, but for me, it's so meaningful. And it's something that just, it just makes me so happy is to see these kids will gather up like little tiny, little tiny scraps of bamboo and little tiny scraps of plastic and fly kites. Mm. 
So if you look out over the camp, I mean, it just gives me goosebumps talking about it because <laughs> it's, it's just so hard to explain unless you've seen it. But on a nice windy day, you'll hear all these giggles and here's one, one little boy and he has an empty plastic water bottle with, you know, 47 pieces of different string all tied in knots that's then tied to tiny pieces of bamboo that's stretched out on, you know, stretching out some plastic to make a kite. It's really just amazing, you know, because they don't even, they don't have any toys. They just make these, they do these things. And then there's some little boys and they create, I'm not sure if I, if you can visualize this, but if you imagine the, the plastic top on a water bottle Mm -hmm. and they get, they get two of these and they turn them into little wheels and then they put a piece of bamboo uh, so that the plastic caps are on either side. And then they take another long piece of bamboo and they push it along like it's a little toy car. Or the other day I saw some children and they had, I think it was an empty um, oil, like a vegetable oil that they use uh, to cook that they get in their distribution. And they had somehow kind of cut it open and tied a string to it and turned it into basically like a sled to pull down the hill so that they could sled down the hill. And, you know, as you're walking through, you just constantly hear the children laughing and they're playing and, you know, they're learning some English. So you'll usually hear something like, hello, how are you? I am fine. Thank you. All in one, all in one at the same time. So are, are the children affected? They, they absolutely are. They were also affected where, where they were in Myanmar because their rights and their access was severely restricted. Mm. So it's, it is heartbreaking, but at the same time to see these children, they're just amazing. They're so resilient. And for me, the kite is a sign of hope every day in the camp. I asked Heather to tell us about any of her favorite personal experiences that she's had while she's been there. (laughs) I'll tell you one of my when I'm having a bad day, I'll tell you this story that always brings a smile to my face. The Rohingya, they, they have their own language. And it's, it's, similar, um, it's similar to one of the dialects of Bengali that's uh, spoken in Chittagong. Um, but it has some of their own words as well. And so I, since I've been here, I'm trying to learn like some of the basic words because I think that, you know, that, that helps if I can speak some of the basic words, like some of the basic greetings to count and these things. And so one of the words that I learned right away is obazi. And obazi is, is basically their equivalent of, oh my God. And and they would use it like in the same like context that someone from America would say, oh, my God. And I was working in the ER one day and this very, very frail woman, I think she weighed like 28 kilograms. She, you know, which is like 60 pounds. And uh, she she came in to be seen in the emergency room. And she I mean, she just barely looked like she, you know, she she was kind of on her last bit of her life as we say, and she was going to go on the uh, cot to be examined. And I could tell she was not strong enough to even like sit herself on the cot. So I saw how small she is. 
And, uh, you know, I, I went to go lift her to put her on the bed and the, the older woman, she barely lets out an, Oh, like that. And I said, Bazi, <laughs> like I finished her. Oh, Bazi. And <laughs> she, this little, <laughs> she started laughing so hysterically. She started crying. Aww. And so, you know, I think you just have like these little moments where, you know, she just, and then she, she grabs my, she grabs my, and she's like, oh, Bazi, <laughs> oh, Bazi. She just thought that it was so hilarious that I, I knew this word and that I finished her sentence, which wasn't like strong enough to even speak. And you know, that's just like a story that I'll, I'll never forget. And everybody just, even her son who had brought her there, even he just started laughing. Her son kind of started crying a little bit like, you know, oh my gosh, this woman just used our word in the right context. This is so fantastic. I, <laughs> so, you know, I think, I think overall in my uh, time in the camp so far, it's these like little, these little interactions like this that we, that we have that are so meaningful. And that is definitely one that, you know, I'll never forget for sure. All over one little word. One thing I would say I have definitely learned is that a smile is a universal language. Mm. You know, I think a smile goes a long way in, in these people. And I think, you know, especially for us as healthcare providers and working in this setting like myself for a long time, it's, it's easy to kind of fall into this, like feeling discouraged and things, but I think we have to just remind ourselves sometimes just a little smile says, says a lot. Hmm. I do have one story. I, (laughs) I found this story kind of like a, you know, like a lesson to myself, but um, the Rohingya are very conservative Muslim society. And so it, it's not uh, a cultural norm for like a, a man to shake hands with a woman. And um, I was seeing a, a gentleman with diabetes who just needed some refill of his medications. And he says, uh, he tells my translator, oh, while I'm here, I also have this, um, you know, rash by my groin area. And so I said to the patient, okay, just one moment and I will get the male doctor to look at it. And <laughs> in the meantime, the as I'm saying this, the patient just they wear this thing called loggy. It's kind of like a long, um, like it's a long piece of cloth. I guess if you looked at it, most people would maybe just say it looks kind of like a dress, mm-hmm. but he, he like just lifts it up. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I had to like quick look away and I'm like, Oh no, wait, wait, wait. And the, and then I like look at the translator and the translator is looking at me like, what's the problem? And then the patient like slowly puts his loggy back down. He looks at me and is like, what is the problem? I said, oh, I just wasn't sure if you wanted me to look. I was going to get the man, a man to look. And <laughs> the patient says, well, what's the problem? You're a doctor, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, you know, sometimes it's just like little, like little things that happen like this, where the patient's just looking at you and you think you're trying to be respectful. And then, you know, and then they're like, well, don't be ridiculous. You're here to help me. <laughs> Like, why are you making a big deal out of this? (laughs) (laughs) You're like, well, I wouldn't normally, but I was trying to be culturally sensitive. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And then we, you know, I have some 
really funny stories. Uh, also, I think the la- just the language and cultural things, just like how the patients just, you know, I try to get them to teach me like at least one new word every day. And just, it's just, the, it's hard. To, I think it's hard to describe the interaction unless you're there, but they just think my accent is so hilarious <laughs> because it's a, a very difficult language for me to speak because the pronunciation of the vowels is so subtle that, um, for example, one day I was, um, we call, we call, it's like a sign of respect. You would call a man like by like brother. And then you'd call like the woman sister. And so one day I was working with it and my translator, who's a, a female doctor, uh, from Bangladesh was, they were just laughing so hysterically at me. I was like, okay, you guys need to take a breath because apparently I was trying to say sister, but then sometimes if you say say the vowels incorrectly, it means forest. And so then they're like laughing, like you just called her a forest. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, now you called her a piece of bread. And it's like, ah. So just some of those like little, you know, some of those like little interactions, like the patient's absolutely, you know, it just gives them something to laugh about. They're laughing at me, but it's, you know, laughing I don't think is not necessarily something that they would do a whole lot. So those are very, those little seemingly insignificant moments of sharing a smile, of sharing a laugh. I think for me, those are my personal stories that I find the most meaningful. So you're, you gladly take on the, 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 to be the, uh, object of their, their jokes, if it gives them an opportunity to laugh. (laughs) Yes, of course. (laughs) Definitely. I mean, I laugh at myself too, because it's funny, but I, yes, I'm definitely, definitely happy to be the source of their entertainment. (laughs) So for those of you who are overwhelmed and wondering if there's anything you can do like I was, Heather explains some ways that we're able to help out. Well, I think there's a lot of ways, a lot of ways that people can help. I mean, I think the first thing is just raising awareness, just letting people know what has happened. You know, this is the largest refugee camp in the world. And so many people have no idea it's here. I think raising awareness can just can really help start something important. And if, if, if nothing else, letting these people know that they're not forgotten, that people know what is, has happened to them and what is happening to them and that people care, you know, just Sometimes, no matter what your situation is, knowing that someone cares is is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, the next thing I would say, especially if you're a healthcare provider, uh, we're always looking for volunteers to come help. We're an organization specifically that relies completely on volunteers and one local physician here from Bangladesh to see all of the patients that we see in clinic every day. So we're always interested in having people come. You can get a firsthand experience of what it's like to be here in the camp, to go raise even more awareness, but also to treat patients and help us. We can't do it alone and we need volunteers to help. And then I know something that, you know, is always brought up in terms of these situations, but really is true, is that these people are 100% reliant on outside donations and support for their entire livelihood. So that includes everything, including their food. Their food is all distributed by the World Food Program. 
um, all of their medications that and all of the uh, medical care that we provide to the patients, we provide completely free of charge to them. Okay. And for someone that has really no source of income or minimal source of income, if they do have access to, to anything and their source of income, by the way, could be lentils. They could be bartering their lentils, their food for needed medication. So it's, you know, really important that we're able to provide the resources that these people need, whether that's in the form of IV fluids or actually I need to run out to the market here shortly and buy a pair of crutches for a young boy who had a femur fracture in Myanmar that has not healed yet. And so he's not been considered a surgical candidate. Um, And obviously that would be impossible for his family to afford. Mm. So um, every little bit goes a long way and um, especially in health sector, but really across all sectors, it's significantly underfunded. And so every little bit goes a long way. I was just having a discussion with someone the other day that's and said, can you imagine if every American just donated $1, Hmm. just one American dollar, how far that would go? in a crisis like this? The organization I work for is very transparent and the money that is donated goes directly into patient care. Um, That's one thing that I think is, you know, just really admirable about this organization, the organization that I work for, uh, for sure. I know, you know, that at least for me, whenever I make donations, I think it's apparent uh, it's important that the organization is transparent and that the the money is actually being used for, um, you know, this going to people in the field. It's going yes. to be affected people. Yes. So um, that's just uh, that's just always really important to me. And when I set out to do like field mission work, that that was always my, you know, bottom line is that I, I would, would only want to work for an organization that like I truly believe in, that is truly transparent and is is truly using truly using the money to benefit the people and and not in other ways that money obviously can be diverted. Mm-hmm. Are they on Facebook? Um, yes. Okay. They're on Facebook. They're on. Uh, I'm not on Twitter, but I'm pretty sure they're on Twitter, Instagram, and then we actually have a an organization webpage as well because they do have other missions going um, ongoing as well that are more short term based. Um, emergency relief missions. Like they just got back from Sierra Leone, um, Lebanon, Syria. Uh, They're getting uh, ramped up to go to Venezuela with the crisis there. So it's it's an organization that provides uh, relief, medical relief services, and particularly in war-torn areas. And uh, right now we have this permanent if you will, I, I don't want to use the word permanent in this in this setting because I hope it's not a permanent setting. So I'll just say long-standing uh, field work here, and but there are, are other projects as well. But you know, I mean, I think like especially in talking to some of the women like my age and a little bit older, I think that they, uh, if they were feeling brave, they would say, "Don't cry for me." Don't cry for what has happened. Use that emotion to make the world aware of what has happened to us so it doesn't happen again. Mm -hmm. And so we can go home.